listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 209. In this episode, we're bringing you some voices from America's industrial heartland about Trump's broken promises. But first, the news. We're doing our best to avoid covering election-related news in this podcast, but there is one vote coming up next week that should be of particular interest to people who care about labor. Proposition 22, a California ballot measure, could redefine the labor rights of rideshare and delivery drivers across the state. The proposition would roll back the key reforms of a landmark labor law passed last year, AB5, which made it much harder to classify gig workers as independent contractors. The giants of gig work, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, etc., were scared out of their wits when that law passed because preventing this classification of their workers would essentially upend their entire business model. Now Prop 22 threatens to undo those reforms for app-based drivers and would deal a major blow to the growing movement around the world to hold these corporations accountable as employers, not simply apps. Over the past few months, pro-Prop 22 groups have spent about $200 million to promote the measure, an unprecedented sum, and that's about 10 times more than the opposition has spent campaigning against it. The top spenders behind the proposition, not surprisingly, are Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Instacart, which have been aggressively buying influence and spreading propaganda about how the proposition would improve working conditions for gig workers. In reality, while the measure does offer a special set of protections specifically for app-based drivers, such as schedule and wage regulations, labor experts say those piecemeal reforms would be much weaker than the standard labor protections for which these drivers would be eligible if they were simply classified as regular employees. And advocates for gig workers have said that under federal and state labor law, they should always have been classified as employees of these companies, companies that have for years profited off of denying their workforce the most basic benefits, such as social security taxes and unemployment insurance. And to further rub salt in the wound, Uber and Lyft are reportedly showering their own drivers with pro-Prop 22 messages. This campaign among drivers was recently challenged in a lawsuit brought by workers who believed that this amounted to unlawful political pressure. The judge in that case recently declined to issue a temporary restraining order, but Rideshare Drivers United, a group representing app-based drivers across California, is charging ahead with their no on Prop 22 campaign. I spoke with Nicole Moore, an organizer with Rideshare Drivers United, about what's at stake in the upcoming vote. Prop 22 right now, it's a total nail biter. Uh, We don't know whether it's going to go up or down. And, you know, tens of thousands of drivers are working right now. We're talking to our friends and family and saying we absolutely need a no vote. None of us are making, you know, minimum wage after expenses at this point. And uh, Prop 22 only uh, will solidify um, us into a permanent second class tier of employment. Um, and, and it doesn't even give us the freedoms that true independent contracting gives us. I mean, it's just everything about Prop 22 is wrong. It's the companies writing their own labor law and then spending, you know, not $50 million, not $100 million, but $200 million to get the voters of California to vote for their own law that only impacts their workers who are app-based drivers and delivery workers. It's the most expensive campaign in the history, not of California, but of the United States, even when you look at inflation and stuff like that. This is 
more money than anybody's ever spent on a proposition campaign. When you look at the most expensive campaigns in California history and you look where the money went, that tends to be where the voting goes. So the fact that the industry hasn't been able to get the yes for 22 votes up above 40%, even with all that spending, we're banking on that. Because people know at this point, as much as we love the service of Uber and Lyft, we know they're not treating their drivers right. And they probably deserve basic labor rights. So this is a nail biter. And what I can say is that, you know, um, drivers that are members of Rideshare Drivers United, we have almost 20,000 uh, members throughout the, the state of California. Today, we're doing phone banking and texting to still undecided voters and telling that drivers will be hurt by Prop 22 to please vote no. We have other folks out there on freeways <laughs> with big banners that say no on 22, waving at people. We're doing everything we can to try and overcome the overwhelming spending on the yes uh, campaign because it's not the legitimate voice of drivers. Drivers know that our lives will be better with basic labor protections, including a base wage, um, which is otherwise known as minimum wage, um, protections such as uh, health care, um, family leave, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance. These are things that as, you know, even as, quote, gig workers, we need in order to keep a roof over our head, in order to keep food on the table, so that we're not continuing to see the kind of plummeting levels. I mean, just when you think Uber or Lyft is paying you the least that they possibly could even think, they go lower. Just yesterday, Lyft started a whole new plan where basically in order to get rides, you basically have to agree to this whole thing where you're going to take every ride and you get 10% less than you would have gotten if you didn't sign up for this plan. So you're basically signing up for a 10% pay cut. And if you don't sign up for it, you basically aren't getting any rides. So, I mean, just when we thought Lyft couldn't pay any worse, they figured out a way to strategize to pay us 10% less. If that isn't you know, a reason to vote no on 22, to vote no against these companies that are taking more and more from drivers and keeping more and more for themselves, then I don't know what is. I remember when AB5 passed, um, it was seen as a really big breakthrough and something that could potentially be a model for the rest of the country in terms of um, establishing basic labor rights for gig economy workers. Um, how much do you think that effort will be set back if Prop 22 prevails. And if that does happen, what will your next steps be as an organization? Well, I mean, let's be clear. Prop 22 is not an overturn of AB5. It's only taking app-based delivery workers and drivers out of AB5 protections, right? So... You know, I mean, I think a lot of people are saying, this is how to destroy AB5. No, 
Anybody that's left an AB5 that doesn't want to be an AB5, they're still an AB5. This is just about app-based delivery and drivers. That's all it is. Um, and, you know, if they're successful in buying California's vote with their $200 million, what are we going to do? Drivers are still, you know, living on life's edge. Um, you know, having to be late on payments to for rent, um, having to skimp on whatever food they have to feed their family. Um, we're not getting the rides that we need. We're not getting the money that we need. It's not even minimum wage after we pay our expenses. So what are we going to do? Well, we're not going to stop organizing. We're going to keep organizing. The other thing that's going on is there is a big movement afoot nationally. So if Lyft and Uber succeed in getting their exemptions through 22, um, you know, we still have national labor law to look at in the D.C. level um, because, you know, right now it's not just app-based workers that are misclassified. There's lots and lots of workers that are misclassified as independent contractors in order for their employers to not have to pay certain payroll taxes and pay into our safety net that that keeps us from, you know, ending up in tents on the street. Like we um, as a nation need to deal with this issue. We need to make it easier for people to organize into unions so they have a real voice on the on the job and have a contract that's legally enforceable, that they know what they can count on in, you know, for the next three years and not wake up to 25% pay cuts, which is what drivers are doing right now. So we will continue our fight. We will continue in California. We will continue to fight a law that is, that is just wrong, that um, you know, doesn't give us any way to even overturn the law legislatively it requires a seven-eighths majority of legislators voting to even amend the proposition if it were to become law. Um, I mean, th th this is basically putting handcuffs on, on any app-based worker. It's so wrong. So we will continue to push back. We'll push back legally. We'll push back in the streets. We'll push back on federal legislation. You know, we've learned now how to do a caravan from San Diego to Sacramento. You believe, um, believe us when we say we can figure out how to do a caravan from California to Washington, D.C. There is no reason that in this country, people that put in 40, 50, 60, I talked to a driver last week who puts in 100 hours a week and still cannot pay his rent in a regular apartment in Los Angeles. This is outrageous. It has to change. All of this while billionaires are getting richer while we are barely scraping by. I don't know if you saw the uh, the lawsuit that was recently filed against uh, Uber's propaganda tactics <laughs> towards its own drivers, yeah. but I don't know if you've been hearing much from drivers about what they're experiencing, or maybe you, you've seen it as well, I guess, yeah. as, as a driver. I mean, yeah, do you sort of get regularly bombarded with <laughs> messages? Because of, um, I'm a part-time driver and, um, you know, thank God I've been able to keep my day job. And, um, you know, this was, this uh, driving is a supplement to my normal income. So I have lost that supplement because I, I can't afford to be in a car 
with somebody and risk exposure to COVID, right? So I'm like many drivers who've really haven't driven since the shutdown in California uh, towards the end of March. Um, I do plan to get back in the car when, when it's safe, but at this point, I don't feel safe. Um, but what I can tell you <laughs> is that even on my driver's app, you know, if I open it, there's a yes on Prop 22 ad. What I've seen from people who are currently driving, um, you know, from our own membership, uh, it looks like 20 to 30% of the drivers, um, you know, who have driven in the past are currently driving because there's less of a demand and it's not as safe. Many drivers have pivoted to delivery work. Um, you know, so yes, people see it in their apps. They um, have had to push buttons that look like they might even support 22 just to get past certain windows in order to get the rides they're trying to take. Um, you know, and I, I heard from one driver that their um, passenger showed them a screen that said, your driver supports Prop 22. Ask them why. I mean, <laughs> I just find that completely wrong. You know, there's there's laws that say employers cannot do that to their employees to basically, you know, pressure them to vote a certain way. And I just think it's outrageous. So I absolutely support the lawsuit that I saw was filed. <laughs> absolutely. My daughter just brought me another flyer that came in, you know, to our mailbox today. That is, you know, a picture of a driver saying yes on 22. And I think, you know, California just needs to know that there's more than 50,000 drivers in driver groups around the state who are absolutely against Prop 22. It's just we don't have the money to get that message to your doorstep and on your TV station. And we need you to listen to our voices. Um, and uh, it, it, this is no joke. This is going to hurt drivers and hurt delivery workers. And it creates a path for other employers to simply create an app um, and deploy their workforce that way and um, go right under any kind of um, you know, rules around the rights and, and basic safety net that being an employee in California has afforded everybody else. That was Nicole Moore of Rideshare Drivers United. The coronavirus crisis has caused all sorts of reassessments of what work is, what it isn't, where it takes place, who does it, and of course, whether it's done for love or money. That is also prompting workers in many different industries, the ones that I often call the laborers of love, to unionize. The Independent Workers of Great Britain, IWGB Union, has had a foster carers branch for a while now, but now American foster carers are unionizing too. Foster carers are usually known as foster parents, though some of the organizers that I've spoken to prefer not to use that term because, well, the first thing that people do when they're trying to define something as not really work is talk about it being family. But now SEIU Local 509 in Massachusetts plans to organize these foster carers, likely in a similar pattern to the one that they've used, that SEIU has used to organize thousands of home health care workers across the country. A Democratic state representative has announced plans to introduce legislation that would allow the union to negotiate with the state of Massachusetts on behalf of the foster carers. Peter McKinnon, president of SEIU 509, said in a press release, quote, These families are undervalued and under-resourced. Like every essential worker, foster parents need a collective voice at the table fighting for them. 
The union argued that the pandemic has only escalated the demands on foster carers, who, in addition to the kinds of remote learning and safety protocols that all parents are dealing with right now, are also providing care for children with a variety of special needs, including those who have experienced neglect and abuse. According to the Associated Press, the carers are preparing a list of demands that will include, quote, free and accessible testing and personal protective equipment, planning for what will happen if a foster parent, foster child, or biological parent is infected with coronavirus, and doubling the daily reimbursement for foster parents to cover expenses incurred while supporting their foster children, end quote. It is an interesting time, no doubt, for questions about whether and how the home becomes a workplace and when and how caring is labor, waged or no. Foster carers are expected to take in children out of the goodness of their hearts, but the state does pay for the care. This is a slope that, of course, welfare rights organizers have long pointed out. So I, for one, will definitely be keeping an eye on this story. Workers at the California coffee shop chain Augie's thought that they could try to protect their safety during the pandemic by forming a union. But when they began working with the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America, or UE, to try to unionize their workplace, they were kicked to the curb and the company shut down all its retail operations, wiping out both their organizing campaign and the workplace itself. But the workers got up, dusted themselves off, and decided they could do better than that. And now they're forming their own coffee co-op enterprise called Slow Bloom Cooperative, nestled in the heart of the Inland Empire. The cooperative is just getting off the ground, raising funds through a Kickstarter, but the band of ex-Augie's baristas hope to pool their wealth of collective coffee experience and to create a community-oriented enterprise that takes care of workers as well as customers. It's part of a wave of cooperatives that have mushroomed across the country in recent years as workers have sought alternatives to the top-down corporate hierarchy and try to create a fairer, more supportive workplace. Today, although the co-op model is more popular in Europe, there are about 400 worker co-ops in the U.S. alone, ranging from home care services to solar energy companies, generating about $400 million in revenues annually, according to the Industry Association NCBA CLUSA. It is quite unique for a union to be so involved with the founding of a co-op. But UE, a left-leaning union with a long history of insurgent labor activism, is hoping to channel its working-class ethos into helping these baristas set up shop. I spoke with Matthew Solis, a slow boom barista, as well as an organizer with UE, about what he envisions for his new business. I started working at Augie's a couple months before the organizing drive, so I was pretty new. Um, at my store, we had kind of a tense situation happen where um, a couple of our coworkers wanted to essentially take some voluntary time away from work because they were living with people who were high risk. This was at the very beginning of the pandemic when everything was really freaky and like not everyone had just decided that this was the new normal. So we had a couple of people that like we had one who lived with other people who worked in healthcare and then one who had like lived with people who were high risk. So they decided to stay home. Uh, what happened there was um, management kind of tried to take that opportunity to kind of just like get rid of one of them. Um, and the two of them kind of stuck together and kind of refused that and said, no, we'll go back in together. And kind of from that, like flashpoint um, me and those those two workers and then a couple other people at our shop decided, hey, maybe we should organize. Um, my roommate worked at one of the other shops and we started talking and, um, you know, we decided to start and form a union at our, uh, at Augie's. Um, and yeah, we were able to kind of organize all five shops within about a month, um, kind of get everyone signed on. Uh, and after, you know, some, after one kind of captive town hall meeting um, where we kind of showed up strong and told our boss, hey, we want a union um they decided to essentially destroy the entire company they laid off all 50 workers um via email on 
one day that we were all off on 4th of July. And um, kind of from there, we, you know, we fought for our jobs for a little while. We worked with UE um, to try and get our jobs back. Um, and actually, I'm, I reached out to UE at the kind of the beginning of the organizing drive, um, essentially just looking around to see what kind of, you know, I, I had uh, listened to um, a podcast about how to start a union. And um, they said you should reach out to a, a larger labor union to back you up. So I um, looked around at some of the unions. I don't. I didn't really know anything about any of the labor unions. So um, I just Googled what unions had endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2020. And UE was the first one I found. So I called them and they were like, uh, yeah, we'll help you out. So I got plugged in with UE. And um, they were incredible. I mean, UE is uh, such a... Uh, incredible organization. I feel so lucky that we kind of just stumbled upon them right at the beginning. And um, yeah, so from there, uh, the after the organizing drive, after after we kind of realized that they're in the restaurant industry, there's a lot of ways for your boss to kind of dodge the, you know, the labor protections that you have. Um, and, and that there really was no way to hold our boss accountable in a reasonable time frame for illegally firing us all. Um, we decided to start a co-op because um, we all need to work and, uh, you know, the jobs that we had were good and we liked them and we were good at them. Um, and we held kind of a special place in our community. It definitely was more than just like, you know, working in a drive through like it was a pretty fulfilling job. Like everyone was really cool. And like, we all feel like we knew a lot of people and it was, it was pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, also, like the area that we live in, in, in the IE, there's like not a lot of other options, especially for people who don't have the time to um, first retrain and then relocate, right? There's like not a ton of jobs out here. It's mostly just like warehouses and stuff. Um, and those jobs suck. So we were like, well, we need to recreate these jobs um, on our own. And uh, yeah, so the, the, the co-op really was born out of the spirit of the organizing drive, which was our boss treats us like shit. Um, and kind of in that, like having that conversation with each other over and over again, you know, we kind of, uh, came to the conclusions of, you know, like we don't need him. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't really help us. He doesn't listen to us. And when, you know, when push came to shove and we were like, Hey, you really have to talk to us. Uh, he was like, no, fuck you guys. We're not doing that. You know what I mean? So, um, definitely felt like we kind of just had to take matters into our own hands. Yeah. Um, and so, how, but how did you settle on the idea of a co-op per se? Cause that is a very particular kind of business organization and, and, uh, and I guess makes you all joint owners. And so that's, that's a, seems like a pretty big leap. Um, so what, what made you decide on, uh, becoming a co-op? Yeah, the, the, the co-op thing is tough. Um, it's, it's a lot of work and it's like, strangely seems like a lot more work than starting a business on your own. But I think the the desire to form a co-op was that, you know, like through the organizing drive, we really all kind of took to heart the idea to heart the idea that every person that works at the job is of equal importance and deserves an equal share of the wealth that it produces. I mean, like in a true sense, like I think at the end of the day that the condition that that forces workers to try to unionize is like that your boss doesn't you know, is skimming, essentially stealing from you, right? Like, cause he doesn't do any fucking work and you do all the work. So, so the, I mean, the co the whole co-op idea is like, we all collectively own and collectively benefit from the work that we do together. Rec just kind of recognizing that, like, I couldn't do the job by myself. I couldn't run the organization by myself. So like, 
you know, that makes everyone of equal importance. And so everyone should benefit equally. Um, and the co-op was the best way we could figure out to preserve that sort of democratic spirit that we kind of built throughout the organizing drive, I guess. So um, sometimes when we think about co-ops, um, you know, since it is a joint sort of a collective ownership structure, um, it's, uh, it's unclear how compatible that model is ultimately with uh, unions per se, right? But so can you explain um, the role, the ongoing role of UE um, in the formation of this co-op if, if there is one? Yeah, so I, to full disclosure, I actually um, am working for UE now. They, so I'm working with them as an organizer, but in um, kind of separately, UE helps the co-op a ton in sort of the uh, ongoing um, kind of uh, any of the battles that are bigger than, than really we know how to do. So UE has put us in contact with a bunch of like co-op lawyers that have helped us kind of set up the internal documents that guide the co-op. They have helped greatly in our fundraising efforts. And, and I think that UE and and we recognize uh, the co-op model as being like an alternative to unionization in a lot of in in the in the restaurant sector because um, to be honest, like restaurants are so small and uh, like the the amount that the owners have on the line, I guess, is so much smaller that it is like especially watching other like service industry small restaurants try to um, organize throughout the pandemic, like. It, it it is kind of an option for the restaurant owners just to like walk and just destroy the business and be like, nah, I'm not really dealing with all this. Don't really make that much money on this shit anyway. Like, um, so, so we kind of see the co-op model as, I guess the tool, right. To, to in an organizing drive where you can essentially say to your boss, like, um, if you don't want to recognize the union, we can just walk and make our own because of the, the particular, like, I don't know, the low cost of entry for the industry, right? Like, it's not like a factory, right? We need, like, you know, tens of millions of dollars to, you know, to form a worker, worker co-op factory, you know, like restaurants are much smaller. It seems like a daunting uh, challenge to be opening up a business, particularly, you know, in the food sector uh, in the middle of a global pandemic. So can you can you talk a little bit about how that process has been and ultimately what what do you envision for this business, how will it uh, operate differently from Augie's? Yes. So, I mean, it does, it does look like Augie's is um, over as a business for now, but um, that, that's not really that important to me. Um, as far as how Slow Bloom will operate, um, I do think this is like a great like chance for us to make some kind of changes to what we saw as inefficiencies and like the way like a traditional cafe would operate, um, specifically kind of leaning into uh, you know, the stuff that everyone's doing right now, delivery, subscription services, and like wholesale roasting. Um, so that's kind of the first goal is for us to get enough money to buy a roaster and a place to house it. Um, and we're getting there for sure. We're getting close. And then, I mean, as far as like, how will the business operate in the pandemic? Like there's so like restaurants run into so many difficulties because the restaurant owners are not responsive to the workers. If the workers are responsible for their own safety and the way they like the way we distribute stuff at work, um, it'll go a lot better. I mean, like there was a bunch of ideas. I mean, there, I could just think off the top of my head of like five different things we could have done at Augie's that would have not inconvenienced customers at all and would have kept us all much safer, much, much safer. But you know, boss doesn't want to hear that shit. He's like, you really want me to tell everyone in all five shops? That's like a lot of work for me. You know, like he doesn't want to hear that, you know? So, um, yeah, I think we can operate the business safely because we're, you know, we have a ton of experience doing it. 
Yeah. And you have a space? Um, we, we don't have a, no, we don't have a space. I don't know how else to say it. No, we don't have a space. We're working on it. Sure. <laughs> right. I, and it's, it's not that like people, I mean, people are really helpful. They, we've had a ton of offers for spaces, but at the end of the day, like uh, we all made minimum wage for the last 10 years. So um, we're working on putting the money together for sure. That was Matthew Solis of the Slow Bloom Cooperative. So you've probably heard that there's an election next week, or maybe it's this week, depending on when you listen to the show. Maybe it's even already happened. And, you know, a lot of people across the country are wondering what happens if, shall we say, the results get a little messy. A couple of friends of the show, Jane McAlevey and Barbara Mataloni, have articles out thinking about what is to be done in that case, and so I figured it was worth it to take a little time to discuss. First up, Jane writes at the New York Review of Books about her experience in Florida at the behest of the AFL-CIO in 2000, when the Supreme Court tossed out the ongoing recount and handed the presidency to George W. Bush. Yes, it has happened before. For our listeners who don't remember this story, I recommend reading Jane's full piece. We will, of course, link to it at the Descent website. She writes, quote, I had three instructions from my higher ups before I stepped out of the van at the courthouse. Wear a hood or hat to cover your head, sunglasses too, so you won't be recognized. Don't talk to reporters and fucking win. I took the orders like a good soldier. We won that day. We proved there was a significant enough discrepancy between voter intent and reported tallies from Election Day in Miami-Dade County to begin recounting ballots in Florida's most populous county, but we didn't win the race, end quote. And now, of course, she's arguing, quote, this year will bring Florida 2000 on steroids. People will get hurt physically, maybe in large numbers. Two related questions come to mind. Can what's left of democracy survive multiple Florida recounts simultaneously? And can it, meaning a further slide into an authoritarian state, happen here? These questions are not hyperbolic, and if we don't seriously prepare in ways that Democrats refused to do in 2000 and appear to be refusing to do now, the answers will be very ugly, end quote. The unions, she notes, bear some responsibility for the rise of a far right, which, as we'll discuss later on in today's show, has made promises to the, well, the white part of the working class about bringing back the good old days. And in order to win these coming fights, the rest of us may have to be bolder than both Democratic Party and national union leadership have often been willing to be. That is where Barbara Mataloni, writing at Labor Notes, comes in. She begins her piece with a declaration from the Rochester, New York Central Labor Council calling on the national AFL-CIO, all of its affiliate unions, and all other labor organizations in the United States of America to prepare for and enact a general strike of all working people, if necessary, to ensure a constitutionally mandated peaceful transition of power as a result of the 2020 presidential elections. The Seattle Education Association, she writes, have resolved to call an emergency meeting to deal with possible election interference, and other unions as well are stepping up. Postal workers in Detroit are printing leaflets pledging to take the streets in the case of a coup, and the UE is also preparing. But these are just a few local unions and councils, and in order to actually stop a version of what happened in Florida, possibly happening in many states again, many, many more people will have to step up. Is your union thinking about what comes next? Let us know at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. So 
Donald Trump won the presidency on naked white nationalist appeals to the worst in America. That is absolutely true. But four years ago, he also ran on a message of hope, bringing industrial jobs back to the places that had been shedding them for years. In the Rust Belt, that message resonated, and counties that had voted for Obama, in some cases twice, swung to Trump. In the past four years, I've reported from Indiana and Ohio and kept in touch with many of the folks I've talked to, from Trump's declaration of mission accomplished, keeping the carrier plant open just weeks after his shocking election victory, to the closing of the Rexnord plant down the street, from the announcement that the storied Lordstown plant would close in Ohio, to the General Motors strike where workers hoped against hope to save those closing plants. There have been many other plants to close besides. A Siemens plant in Burlington, Iowa was one of the most recent. And so I followed up with some of those workers in the past couple of weeks to see what the feeling is. As Trump and Pence bluster about saving jobs, about Carrier and Lordstown booming, what's it really like? Today, we bring you a few of those folks. First up is the man, the myth, the legend, Chuck Jones, formerly president of United Steelworkers Local 1999 in Indianapolis, which represents workers at Carrier and several other plants, including the Rexnord plant where Chuck himself worked until it closed. Chuck is now a local elected official, Wayne Township trustee, and was targeted with angry Trump tweets when he pointed out at the time that the president's promise to save jobs wasn't actually what it was cracked up to be. I called him up to find out what's changed and what hasn't. The two plants that closed down about the same time was Carrier, quite naturally, and Rex Nord, uh, a plant that wasn't affiliated with Carrier, but about a mile away from the carrier plant okay. that uh, I actually, uh, you know, hired in 1969. Yeah. But anyway, uh, carrier ended up moving uh, quite a few jobs to Monterey, Mexico. Right. And I, I don't know what all transpired, uh, but evidently some of the stuff didn't work out real well there, even though it's still in operation. So what they end up doing they end up uh, permanently laying off a bunch of people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so consequently, uh, people went on with their lives. Well, Carrier then realized that they couldn't produce as many uh, products with the number of people they had. So they, they gave them an opportunity to come back. And uh, they, they came back. In the meantime, Carrier's hired uh, I don't know, four or 500 more. So yeah. what they're actually at, pretty damn close to what the numbers actually were mm-hmm. when uh, they they was going to shut down and, and uh, only have 730 people on the plant. So they're mm-hmm. up to about 1,100 probably yeah. now. And uh, Rex Nord, uh, even though Trump said it wasn't going to happen, yeah. it, it closed down in its entirety. Uh, I retired because I had a pension coming from those folks. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, we got a, a plant that uh, we had uh, about 350 bargaining unit people. Uh, they all lost their jobs, quite naturally, the mm-hmm. office people, too. So uh, it, it, it closed, and people had to go on with their, you know, their lives in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Most of it, it wasn't good. You know, I talked to people uh, after it happened, and, you know, it's, I'm going to use Rex Nord as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average salary out there was about $25 an hour. They were working uh, as much overtime, basically, as they wanted. A lot of them were working 60 hours a week, and anything over 40 was time and a half. So, consequently, they were bringing on a pretty good paycheck. Well, right. then when the plant closed, 
shuts down, these people are now on the street, you know, looking for a job. Yeah. And, uh, you know, luckily some of them found jobs, but they were in the 16, 17 hour an hour range. Right. And, you know, a big part of it was there wasn't no overtime opportunities. So mm-hmm. they just didn't lose from 25 to 17. They lost, you know, with all overtime they, they had an opportunity to get uh, at that point in time. And some of them had to pull uh, children out of college. Some of them, you know, just uh, their wives went to work and, did, you know, maybe weren't working before and just making a, a whole uh, lifestyle change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what are the sort of, you know, the effects on that, right? People are pulling kids out of school, but like, you know, I assume that the the bar that was across the street from Carrier and whatever has probably seen business go down. I imagine that like things change in the neighborhood, right? Oh, yeah, most certainly. You know, you saw uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, the, the property, it was up for sale. Uh, part of it was through foreclosures, and some of it was through uh, they had to get rid of it and maybe uh, cut back on, on their house payment that they currently had. Yeah. I mean, it must be frustrating to sort of look at Carrier and know that, like, we could have saved jobs. Well, you know, what frustrates me on Carrier and Rexnord both is and you heard me say this probably numerous times uh the plant was making money yeah. uh our people were pr- producing a good quality product getting all kind of awards for quality yeah. and uh for no other reason uh both of them moved jobs to monterey mexico because they were paying the mexican workers about two dollars an hour and no benefits so you know it's frustrating to know that you know when people say this oh shit well American worker can't compete. Yeah, yeah we can compete on, on, on everything, but we sure as hell can't compete with $2 an hour wages. Our people right. aren't and can't and, and won't work for those type of wages. So what these greedy-ass companies do is they, they move move it somewhere out of this country in order to get a cheap wage. Okay. And the protector of all jobs, he, he's going to bring jobs back to this country and stuff. Well, I, I you know, not that I'm smarter than anybody else, or sure as hell I ain't. But, you know, uh, people bought that, you know, and, you know, I'll give anybody an opportunity to make a mistake. I I didn't buy that shit because he wasn't saying anything about bringing his jobs back for his daughters, but he's going to bring all these jobs back. Well, you know, he uh, has broke records losing jobs, uh, you know, to other countries than any other president in history. So uh, the thing about it is how in the hell whether it's a union person or not, but a working class person in general, still vote for this lying bastard. So going forward, right, I know, um, I mean, I remember talking to you about how people were skeptical about voting for Hillary Clinton. Do you think that folks are more enthusiastic about Biden, feel about the same? What do you, well, what's your, what's your uh, feeling on, on that? my personal feelings and, yeah. and uh, what I think other people do. Yeah. Most people did not trust Hillary Clinton. Uh, now we got Biden. Now, uh, was he my first choice? No, he wasn't. But, you know, uh, on the same token, uh, he's definitely the safe choice. And that's who I, I voted for. And 
encouraging everybody else to vote for him too. Uh, you know, but yeah. a lot of people, I don't, I don't think, are voting for Biden. They're just voting against Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, you know, because I know that, like you said, a lot of people voted for Trump, not necessarily out of confidence that he was going to be great, but because it was at least not more of the same. One of his speeches, you know, he was uh, on a roll when when uh, the when uh, the contest was going on, yeah. and he was talking about Hillary Clinton this, Hillary Clinton that, and then he said, "Well, voting for me, what do you stand to lose?" Mm-hmm. And I knew at the time I said, that's going to resonate. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what Hillary Clinton's record is. Yeah. They, they don't know, and they they think Trump's all this um, multi-billionaire shit, which I think. Private, private isn't true anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's like, okay, this guy is a really good negotiator. You know, he's a good deal maker. You know, he's our guy. He's going to keep these jobs here in this country. He's going to bring back jobs from China and Mexico back to this country. Well, you know, he sold us a bag of shit and people bought it. Mm-hmm. So if Joe Biden wins, because we know what happens if Trump wins, nothing's going to be good. But like, Right. If Biden wins, what are you hoping to see out of and like if the Democrats take the Senate back, something like that? Like, what are you hoping they'll actually do? Uh, we damn well better better uh, do everything we possibly can for working class people because Obama, what his first two years, I think we controlled everything, and uh, he played nice. And uh, then uh, when the Republicans got in, the his first term, the second two years, mm-hmm. uh, they forgot we was playing nice. This nicey, nicey shit has got to stop. You know, people have got to say, okay, you know, uh, who put me in office and what's the right thing to do? You know, people in the middle class got to have a voice, and uh, I'm hoping that's what they do, but, you know, time will tell, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's seriously real yeah. <laughs> um, yeah you know and we, we we ought to be able to control everything so you know mm-hmm. uh, the way the republicans have, have uh, screwed working class people around okay it's payback time now we're we're, we're gonna uh, look after them but you know uh, i'm not over optimistic one way or another it's time will tell yeah yeah all right well i think that's everything unless there's anything else you think people should know about that i didn't ask yeah, I want people to vote, and uh, you know uh, they've had a four-year trial period with this clown, so it's time to uh, change. That was Chuck Jones, former president of United Steelworkers Local 1999 in Indianapolis. Shannon Mulcahy also worked at Rexnord for nearly half her life. One of the few women in the plant, her story should remind us that the working class has never been, and is especially not now, all male or indeed all white. She shared that story with me while on the way to Nashville with Mike Oles of Our Revolution to protest outside the final presidential debate to make sure the stories of workers like her were heard by someone, anyone. I worked for Rexnord for 18 years. You know, they came in and our, our uh, company was doing very well. They come in and one day and sent us home that same day, told us that they was going to close the factory and suspend all operations and open it back up in Mexico. Yeah. So basically they fired us all. And um, for, I mean, I mean, the company was doing very well. There was no reason for it. 
there was property and everything. And um, so it was really, it was really uh, heart wrenching for me. Uh, of course, I grew up there. You know, that was the only stability I ever had in my life. Um, and uh, they had us train our Mexican workers. You know, for extra money. Yeah. And then, and then moved to moved to Mexico. So it's kind of like here I am now, and um, I'm very capable of working right now. It's been hard to. I can't even find a job that makes near as much money as I was making. There. Yeah. So, you know, it just it just sucks that you know I, I thought that President Trump was gonna stop it, you know, because he stopped save some of the jobs at Carrier, mm-hmm. and especially since he tweeted, you know, Rex Nord, no more, but that didn't happen either, so it's kind of like his lie, so here I am with Mike, with our revolution, Yeah. and I'm joining them and, and trying to fight for our jobs. Well, I guess, what's it been like I, since it actually closed? Um, it's depressing Gosh, 46 years. Wow. you do at Rexnord? What was your job? Um, I worked in the heat tree. Yeah, what is that like? Um, it was different. I was the only girl. Yeah. Uh, I went through a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, like, I don't know how to explain it, so to get them to accept me into the place, I, I put up with a lot of shit. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's kind of like the only job I know. Like, I mean, yeah. I know I like the back of my hand, and that's the only job that I know, and I miss it. You yeah. know, um, it was hot. There were some days you worked your ass off, and there were some days that when we wasn't running around, then you know everything's running good. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I miss it a lot. Yeah. A lot. What have you been doing since? Um. Well, I had another job. Of course, uh, COVID hit. I got mm-hmm. laid off indefinitely. Mm, yeah. So I've been doing um, caregiving for my granddaughter. Yeah. Handicapped. And uh, trying to think of what my next step is, of what career is what I need to do. Yeah. You know? So, of course, I, I, plus I've had to 
stuff that I probably won't find another job making the money I was making. Yeah. But no education, you know. Yeah. And I'm 46 years old. Must go back to college. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm open for it, but you know, I need to make money now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How did you meet Mike and get involved in uh, our revolution? He contacted me after I lost my job and everything, and uh, asked, you know, told me a little bit about what they do, and asked if I could come hang out with them. And so here I am, and I'm hanging out with them. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm having fun. <laughs> I believe in a, their revolution, you know. Yeah. And definitely. About time somebody does something. At least somebody trying. Yeah, is this the first debate you've been to, or have you been to other ones or any of the other events? You know, I really wasn't into much politics until I got with these guys, and so I'm learning on the way. I mean, I watched the debate. Yeah. When I called the debate, um, which was just like, you know, Trump just being a bully, and and, and people were thriving on it, you know? They were liking it, so... But I believed him, you know, because he talked about saving jobs. You know, I never heard any president that I've been alive about saving our jobs. And he talked to us, and, you know, it really felt like real, you know, mm-hmm. for one. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, but I guess it was all just a lie, if you ask me. Yeah. I mean, where, where are those companies that come back? Where are they at? Yeah. Yeah, and like, what was it like? I guess for like them to save, you know, at least part of Carrier, and then to watch Rexnord just go anyway. That was Shannon Mulcahy, a longtime worker at Rexnord in Indiana. And last but certainly not least, I spoke also with friend of the show Tim O'Hara, who worked at the Lordstown plant outside of Youngstown, Ohio, from the 1970s, the storied days of rebellion, until its closure. Like so many of the Lordstown workers, O'Hara moved away from Lordstown when the plant closed down and is now in Bowling Green, Kentucky, but he maintains some hope nonetheless. Trump came youngstown in 2017 and yeah. held one of his rallies downtown i was actually at a counter rally like mm-hmm. a half a mile away that you know we put on with uh various unions and groups 
in Mahoning County. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, he, you know, he gave one of his stories that when he was driving from the airport to the event, you know, he's looking at all the closed steel mills and, you know, of course he did the famous don't sell your house and all the mm-hmm. jobs are coming back. And, and the ironic part is like the exact opposite happened. Like everybody, right. not everybody, but you know, hundreds of people that used to work at GM Lordstown, in right. fact, did sell their house and move to other states and including myself. Right. So I sold my own house. So, um, it's been going on for four years about how, you know, Ohio kind of put him in the presidency in Mahoney County specifically in Trumbull. And, um, it's like a never ending story. So, yeah. And, it, you know, even before the, the virus hit, Ohio's economy wasn't like doing great at all. I mean, and, and really when you, when you get past Trump being like a raving lunatic, I mean, he, <laughs> His economic policy is still the same mm-hmm. trickle down supply side that Reagan did, that Bush did. You know, you give all the tax breaks to the wealthy and middle class gets mm-hmm. pennies on the dollar. And of course it it never works. I mean it is yeah. it's never worked. It's never trickled down. It's always been the same policy and it's always been the same result. So I mean even if the virus hadn't hit, I think we would still be heading for an economic downturn because that's just mm-hmm. the way supply side economics works. And, and really, you know, if, if Biden wins, it's going to be the same scenario. Like mm-hmm. a Republican ends up destroying the economy and a Democrat gets in and either fixes it in four or eight years. And then for some stupid reason, there's always a chance that voters are going to put a Republican back in to do the same thing and repeat the cycle all over again. So, um, yeah, that's where it's at. I mean, it's, and as far as the Valley, I mean, you know, there's a lot of hope and expectation that this Lordstown motors and this battery plant that James building, I mean, they're actually building it. It's, it's going up. It's not like it's yeah something that's going to happen. You know, it's, it's a structure already. So, yeah. You know, they they're both promising up to possibly two thousand, twenty five hundred twenty five hundred jobs, but which is great. I mean, I spent yeah. my whole life in the valley until I had to move last year. So I mean I want good paying union jobs up right. there. I mean, I still have a lot of friends and family that are still up there and I you know, I want the economy to do well, but no matter what, nothing's going to replace the, you know, 5,000 direct jobs and the thousands of indirect jobs right. that were lost when GM, in my mind, unjustly closed that facility. So, Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the question of the indirect jobs, right? Because, like, it's not just that the plant closes down. It's, it is the people who move. It's the, you know, it's the restaurants and bars around the plant that nobody goes to anymore. It's all of that stuff that like, you know, in a way that does trickle down, right. That like the one big center of jobs closes and all of the things that were in the periphery also get affected. Right. I mean, you have everything from, you know, secretaries that we 
employed at the Union Hall. Right. Um, and like you said, you got restaurants, you have uh, teachers that had to be laid off because a lot of students ended up getting pulled out of the school systems and moving. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, the list is long. Look at all the taxpayers that got pulled out of mm-hmm. the Mahoning Valley. You know, I'm paying taxes in Kentucky now, and I'm not paying them back in Ohio. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors that, that are that are in play when, you know, a plant that size closes. Yeah, and I, I just, you know, still think about, like, you know, it's not necessarily that, like, everybody misses working on the assembly line, but there is something about the whole structure of a place, I guess, when something that big is gone. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you know from when you were up there, I mean, Youngstown and Mahoning Valley used to be one of the top-making steel facilities, uh, producing areas in the world, of course, and, you know, in 77, everything started falling apart. Um, And there was probably... 100,000 jobs lost with that, whether directly or indirectly in the Mahoning Valley. But, you know, GM was always still there, right? I mean, and and I can remember when I got a job there in 77, I was 18, right out of high school. And, you know, I started at like $6.60 an hour, which was, you know, I like was on top of the world. I had more money than I knew what to do with, right? right? Because... I mean, the minimum wage at the time was probably only like two bucks. So, yeah. um, and when you got a job at, at, with, at GM, like, you know, that was kind of a big thing in the Valley. Like you didn't even have to say you worked at GM, just say where you work at Lordstown. You know, mm-hmm. everybody automatically knew. And, you know, the life of an auto worker is you're always waiting for like the other shoe to drop. So while it was a good job, you always, it was never really secure, right? Because even though I worked there for 41 years, like I was laid off dozens of times during that period. And, you know, and and towards the end of my career, probably actually starting in the late nineties, then you started getting, you know, they, they could close the plant and, you know, GM would always hang that over our heads. I was always like, you have to do this or, they could close the plant and mm-hmm. you know, you know, GM has a history of closing plants. They've done it for years and, yeah. but you never think it's going to happen to you. Right. So, yeah. and that's kind of still a lot of our, our people back home, you know, a lot of, all of them are still thinking like, you know, I can't believe that it actually happened. Right. Because I mean, we always, ended up surviving, right? We were always survivors, no matter what happened with the economy, you know, no, what, what, no matter what happened within General Motors, mm-hmm. we always ended up surviving somehow in some way. Yeah. But, you know, this time we didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's... I just keep thinking about, you know, this this way that, like, people talk about, like, the economy, right? Like, it's a weird monster that has to be fed human sacrifices in order to keep going. I mean, that's another thing with Trump. I mean, he's so focused on the stock market, the stock market, but you know, for the majority of middle-class working people, 
they don't have no stocks. I mean, they might have something invested with a 401k, but it's not like they sit around following it, right? I mean, a lot of these people live paycheck to paycheck. Like, they're not really invested in the stock market. I mean, that's not the real economy, right? Right. So, in a a lot of the Trump middle class and the union people, they'll repeat that, oh, the stock market's doing great. The stock market's doing great. But, you know, what's it really doing for them unless they're like heavily invested in it? And the majority of working blue collar people really aren't invested yeah. in the stock market. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's there's that two economies. There's like mm-hmm. the Trump side economy, which is all about the start stock market. And then there's actually what's happening on the ground. Right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. people are struggling, especially now during this pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, you got evictions are going through the roof. I mean, uh, people are losing their houses. Uh, they're getting kicked out of their apartments because they can't pay their rent because they're not working. I mean, it's there's a whole trickle down effect, right? Opposite of the economic one that they're pushing mm-hmm. because of his failures with the pandemic, and and yeah. you know. And really, when you look at it, and this is the message I've been trying to push to people that I know, yeah. and I don't think I really know anybody that's undecided. I mean, I don't even know how you could be mm-hmm. undecided on this election after four years of this. But, you know, I, I, th- I think the big picture is like democracy is actually at risk here now. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just about the normal stuff you go through in an election, you know, like tax cuts and foreign policy. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's all part of it. But I mean, I think we're actually talking about the survival of democracy as it exists right now. I mean, obviously it's not perfect, but yeah. you know, it's what people throughout the world are looking at as an example of what a country should be. And right now, you know, it's hanging by a thread. So, yeah. um, I just hope, you know, people that are outside of Trump's call realize that, you know, they can't sit this election out. You know, they can't vote a third party. I mean, they they really got to get out there and and vote. And, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by the long lines I'm seeing in some of these in some of these states. But. Yeah. Although you think I just don't by want now people you... to get overconfident. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think you'd, we'd know by now that, like, we have a lot of people who might want to vote. Maybe we shouldn't have long lines because maybe we should be set up to actually accommodate people voting, especially in a pandemic. Well, well yeah, I mean, that's obviously <laughs> that's part of their suppression plan, right, that, that yeah. there's long lines. But, right. um, you know, I'm just I'm encouraged by the fact people are actually worried enough that they're they're standing in line for mm-hmm. 10 12 hours even though it's totally unnecessary that they should have to do that yeah the plants that i know the uh the battery plant is gm so it would potentially be uaw jobs but do we know anything about the lordstown motors other than you know mike pence showing up in a, an electric truck at some rally <laughs> well well the gm battery thing is is a partnership with uh, LG Chem, which is a Korean mm. um, company, so it's not totally GM. It's yeah. like fifty-fifty with this 
uh, other company. Um, so we don't really know what their plans are as far as union because it's not a total GM facility. Uh-huh. So um, that's kind of a wait and see when they actually start hiring people. Yeah. So now with the Lordstown Motors deal, you know, they put out a lot of great videos, obviously. I mean, they're really good videos right now. <laughs> but right. as far as actually producing the truck, they're still talking about sometime next summer, I believe, for one will actually come off the line. Yeah. And as far as unionization, I mean, they met with the UAW once, like back in February, I believe. It's just kind of... Uh, introductory type deal mm-hmm. and you know they're still saying that they're open to the workers there being union but i think they're going to have to go through a typical organizing drive and mm-hmm. then vote so i mean i don't think either one of those things are like a slam dunk that mm-hmm. they're automatically going to be uaw and and who's to say that another Major union might try to organize them, mm-hmm. organize them, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe the Teamsters comes in, or the electrical workers, or yeah. you know, who knows? I mean, normally they don't step on each other's toes when it comes to organizing, but you know, with what happened in Detroit with some of the top UAW officials, as far as the corruption is mm-hmm. concerned, yeah, you know, that's another issue that is going to be on the table. And the sad part is like these companies used to always lie to the employees saying if they voted for the union, they're going to steal their money. Well, mm-hmm. these guys actually did steal it. So, I mean, they don't even have, all they have to do is say, well, Google this mm-hmm. or Google that and you know, you'll see what happens. So I think it's going to be yeah. a battle, right? And it's going to depend who they hire. I mean, if they hire, bunch of young people that are not familiar with unions, there's no guarantee that they're going to vote for a union anyhow. So Mm -hmm. those are two uh, kind of wait and see things as far as what's going to happen with both of those places. Yeah. What else should people know about sort of just, I mean, you, you grew up near Lordstown, right? This is where you were your whole life. Yeah. Until I came down here. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, tell me, like, I I hate to be depressing, but, like, a little bit about what that's like to pack up and move after spending, you know, your entire life in one place. Well, yeah, it, it, you know, I never expected that I would be, you know, being retired and living in a different state, right? I mean, none of us, none of us did uh, in the the hundreds of other people. I mean, we have people in um, Texas, Tennessee, Indiana, Missouri, Kansas, Michigan, New York, other parts of Ohio. So, I mean, we got scattered everywhere. And, you know, I, I kind of, I call Mary Bear like Mary Appleseed because, you know, mm. she, she basically um dropped a hammer on local 1112 right and you know she sent our members 
all over the nation, but you know, she kind of planted seeds of local eleven twelve and all these other states and, and, and some of the plants, you know, some of our former members actually have run for office and been elected at their new yeah. facilities, right? So um and and I still don't think that the closing of Lordstown was just a business decision, right? I, I think there was a lot of personal feeling involved. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there was a animosity towards local 1112 within GM's corporate structure going all the way back to what happened in the early 70s with all the labor issues, right. you know, back there. And, you know, I think as they rise up the corporate ladder, they, they're told about what, what they call the Lordstown culture, right? right? And, and the funny part is, you know, when they send the management people to Lordstown from all different parts of the country, right? Right. And they've never worked at Lordstown before. When they come in, they automatically start talking about, we're going to change the Lordstown culture. And and they could never really define what that was, but, mm -hmm. you know, they had to hear that at one specific place, and that was Detroit. So, um, so yeah, they destroyed the Lorsan culture, but they've also sent Lorsan people all over the country to maybe start up <laughs> a new version yeah. of what they call the culture. So, you know, maybe it's going to come back and bite them in the you-know-what at some point. <laughs> we'll have to see. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. If you have been parenting throughout the pandemic, you don't need me to tell you that it's hard work. But Hadas Thier analyzes her motherly duties in the context of our current warped political landscape in the Jacobin article, Parenting is a Job, During the Pandemic, It's Impossible. Tier writes that in normal times, parents, particularly mothers, are typically pressured to shoulder an ungodly amount of stress as they work the double shift of their regular job and their parenting responsibilities. During the pandemic, the burdens of both family work and paid work are hyper-concentrated in the 10-square-foot space that operates as your so-called home office. Or they're both spiraling out of control on divergent paths as you try to simultaneously be two people at once. All in all, it becomes a miracle that one manages to get any work or any parenting done at all. Tier emphasizes that the unwaged work of keeping a family alive involves manual labor, emotional labor, and a bit of amateur psychology. Quote, the job description includes waking up early, cooking, feeding, getting groceries, a highly skilled task when your child needs nutrition but will only eat Cheerios and pasta, dressing, packing supplies, if God forbid you have to drag the child out of home, cleaning the child, cleaning the house, organizing the toy sprawl is a full-time hamster wheel in and of itself, doing the dishes, doing the laundry, changing diapers and or wiping butts, heavy lifting, playing, not as fun as it sounds, entertaining, reading, holding, listening, understanding complex emotions, counseling, helping to navigate other relationships, negotiating, worrying, wrangling, fighting, nap time, bedtime, nighttime wake-ups, buying clothes and household necessities, trips to the doctor, and the ever-dreaded scheduling of their and your lives now add homeschooling, unquote. 
And Tyr acknowledges that her relative privilege, as someone who can afford to work from home, makes her daily routine much more bearable than those who have to go out to work. Those workers have to balance their jobs with school and daycare schedules and must, quote, worry about the possibility that school or work or both are exposing your family to a life-threatening virus. In the places where school and childcare are not available, the only option is to lose your job, unquote. Though we all know that that's not really an option. And it gets even more impossible when there is only one parent in the household, and that's generally the mom. For single parents, both work life and domestic life are rather unforgiving in typical work situations in which paid leave policies are minimal to non-existent, and childcare can cost more per year than college. And that's if you're fortunate enough to get a spot in your local daycare. Meanwhile, rules on social distancing exacerbate the chronic social isolation that was already ingrained in many of our lives prior to the pandemic and economic lockdown. Although your kids never leave you alone, parenting can often feel like a very lonely business. Tia writes, quote, a single mom must somehow manage to parent all day and all night while also working and being the sole provider of income. In the cases where schools and daycare centers are closed, single parents are not able to work. Without a job, they are left with little to no unemployment benefits to feed and shelter their children and with no other parent in the house to take over while they apply for jobs or run basic errands to get groceries. During the pandemic, the lack of social supports for single parents is heightened because social distancing measures make it nearly impossible to get outside help. So it's not surprising that many women are dropping out of the workforce altogether amid the pandemic. The stimulus bill offered some limited parental leave to eligible workers, but there were huge carve-outs that exempted many industries and many low-wage workers, including those supposedly essential healthcare workers that are trying to keep us all safe while feeding their families. Tier explains, quote, the unworkable bind that pandemic parenting has left mothers, fathers, and other caretakers in, but particularly mothers, has led to a shrinking of the workforce. Unmet child care needs play a significant role in unemployment rates appearing to fall because the official unemployment count does not include discouraged workers or those not able to actively look for work, unquote. And being a low-income working parent these days certainly is discouraging. If we had a more rational social service infrastructure, the system would contemplate parenting as labor, what is called the work of social reproduction in Marxist parlance. That doesn't necessarily mean that every chore we do, dinner we make, or butt we wipe needs to be monetized, but rather that this work is accounted for when the state decides to allocate resources to help people stay stable, secure, and healthy during times of hardship. Working parents should have universal, publicly funded childcare. Yet they should also have the autonomy to stay at home with their children instead of working if that's what makes the most sense for their household. Although these issues have been hotly debated for years, Tier is certainly not the first one to bring up the lack of affordable childcare, the government continues to operate under the assumption that private individuals can quietly absorb the burden of this labor on their own, or that private markets will somehow correct for the deficits created by systemic patriarchy and extreme inequality, and sort out the provision of paid leave and care labor and other benefits at a fair market price. The pandemic has shown how distorted this market logic has become, and how little we value certain kinds of work. And that includes the care work done for wages or the care work that we do for, quote unquote, free for loved ones. Today, the work of social reproduction is the only thing holding society together in the face of a mortal public health risk. So when we try to extract that labor on the cheap, it costs all of us time, money, and even our lives. The American Prospect has a whole issue devoted to the subject of family care, chock full of great pieces that you should read, including... <clears throat> one by me on paid sick time. But I wanted to highlight one piece in particular from one of my favorite reporters, Maureen Tasik. 
titled The Corporatization of Nursing Homes. In this piece, Mo does what she does best, show us just how bad things have gotten, point the finger squarely at those responsible for the crisis. Nursing homes have, of course, been an epicenter of the coronavirus crisis. This should come as no shock to our listeners. But perhaps the details of the way nursing homes have turned into a place for sucking profit out of those who can no longer work by exploiting the people who care for them are things that have maybe escaped you. Mo's story begins like a good Hollywood thriller. Quote, Maureen Dittmar of Rochester, New Hampshire, was sifting through junk mail one Saturday in early August when she found an envelope obviously sent by a human being. It began, the content of this letter may be hard to hear, but you deserve to know the truth. The anonymous author was a staffer at her mother's nursing home, end quote. The nursing home had slashed staffing so drastically at this New Hampshire facility, part of the Genesis healthcare chain responsible for 357 facilities around the country, that one nursing assistant was responsible for 39 patients. By the end of May, Mo writes, more than 1,500 Genesis healthcare residents had died around the country. The anonymous letter continued, quote, it has always been a known rule in any healthcare facility to never mention to family or residents that we are having staffing issues. We feel the current restrictions on in-house visitations from the families is allowing a veil of protection for corporate and management. Families are unable to see the full effects on their loved ones, end quote. Why is this all so bad? 70% of nursing homes in the U.S. are for-profit, and therein lies, well, a big part of the problem. Not that things are always great at the nonprofits either. The workers are the ones, of course, who speak out about the horrific conditions since family members are prohibited from visiting right now. And those conditions are awful indeed, she writes. Quote, state health departments suspended Medicare inspections during the pandemic. It has been 18 months since Colonial Hill saw one. So management is no longer even trying to avoid the most conspicuous signs of neglect. Filthy clothing, odd facial hair, urine on the floor and in the air. In many hard-hit homes, dead friends are being replaced with psychiatric referrals from psych wards at homeless shelters. In more selective ones, dementia sufferers are being ejected into psychiatric hospitals. At a facility in Pennsylvania with one certified nursing assistant for every 22 residents, eight assistants teamed up to tell the evening news their patients were going months without a bath. The average resident in one facility in suburban Illinois lost 3.7 pounds between February and April alone, with nearly a quarter losing more than 5% of their body weight. End quote. And then there are those dozens of state laws passed hastily in the spring, which grant the entire healthcare industry immunity from legal liability. Oh, yes. So even in describing something so absolutely abysmal, Mo is still one of my favorite writers to read, bringing a bristling contempt that is so well-deserved when reading about these vultures. She writes, quote, I began my research under the assumption that senior care facilities were much like other private equity-stripped healthcare institutions, bought up and saddled with debt and forced to cut costs wherever possible, leading to unconscionable outcomes for workers and residents. I assumed financial firms perverted a formerly well-intentioned system for providing vital care. The truth is almost the inverse. The private equity guys learned a lot of their tricks from the original nursing home predators, end quote. I am, of course, not going to read the whole thing out loud to you. It is quite long, though I kind of would like to. There's a fascinating dive into the history of something called the Syndicate of Nursing Home Profiteers, which involves a dude who owns a yacht that he literally named Octopussy, because of course he did. The excruciating details of the business practices of these people, and the reality is that families and our tax dollars are paying for severely underpaid and understaffed workers to struggle to care for severely underattended patients. 
In conclusion, Mo writes, what we actually need is a public health corps that can assume the reins of a perilous healthcare provider. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, has the ability to temporarily nationalize banks when it senses they have devolved into Ponzi schemes. Healthcare regulators need to recognize that a nursing home that pays 22% interest on its credit lines but fails to bathe its patients is just a Ponzi scheme with humanitarian implications and develop protocols for intervening before these develop into mass casualty situations. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on worker cooperatives, Uber drivers, foster carers, and the goddamn election. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now Colin Kinneberg for editing us. And as always, 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 and especially in this hellscape that we are living through right now, thank you to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, sharing your stories with us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either our longtime members at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. Or those of you who have signed up so far on our Patreon with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. We, of course, understand that money is tight for a lot of people right now. But if you are still working and perhaps spending less money on going out drinking or things like that lately, um, there are some wonderful, wonderful Molly Crapapple worker portraits for the highest tier, other good gifts. And as always, you can find out more about everything we've discussed today on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And of course, we want to hear from you if you want to share your story of working in a pandemic or wishing you weren't working in a pandemic. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are driving for a gig company or slinging food and coffee, if you are still working in a factory or have been let go from one, if you are a carer in a nursing home or a private home, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.